Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Paul Bloom. Paul Bloom is the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor of Psychology at Yale University and author of the books Just Babies and How Pleasure Works. His latest book, Against Empathy, now in paperback, makes the case that, despite common belief, empathy does more harm than good. In a controversial and thought-provoking manifesto, he examines the seemingly paradoxical notion that empathy often promotes immoral behavior despite our best efforts, and how our public and personal lives would benefit morally from limiting our own predisposition to act on empathy. All right, so Paul Bloom is on the phone with us, and Paul is the author of Against Empathy, and thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, So to start us off, what made you want to decide to write about this problem of empathy in the first place? Well, I've always been interested in morality, in good and evil. A lot of my laboratory research explores how children come to have a sense of right and wrong. I'm interested in how adults' minds work. And I began to get increasingly interested in the question of how our emotions guide us. And kind of started to converge to the conclusion that often we make our worst moral decisions when we're caught up in strong feelings. So I decided to focus on empathy as a case study of this, just because everybody loves empathy. So I figured if I can convince you for empathy, I can convince you for everything else. <laughs> um, so just to make sure we're all starting off on the same page here, um, for you, what would you say the definition of empathy is? Because a lot of people can take that to mean different things. But for this book, in scientific terms, what is empathy? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I have to begin discussions of this book in the most boring way possible by defining <laughs> my terms because people mean it in so many different ways. So some people just use the term empathy mean everything good, being mm-hmm. a kind person, helping others, being a mensch. And I'm not against that. And other people use it to refer to social intelligence, understanding how other people's minds work. And I'm not against that either. The sense I'm using empathy, and this is the way a lot of psychologists and philosophers use it, and that's the way in which many people use it as well, is to feel what other people feel. So if you're in pain and I feel your pain and you're sad and it makes me sad, that's empathy. Mm-hmm. And so um, this book is very much a product of conversations and criticisms um, around this topic from articles you had published, conversations you had leading up to the book. Um, how did that affect what went into the book for you? It was an unusual experience for me. You know, Often I've, I've written a few books before, and typically you, know, you sit by yourself and you write them and you get some feedback, and then you send them out into the world and see what happens. But this was a bit different. I sort of did my thinking aloud for this one. I, it, it stemmed from a New Yorker article, which got a lot of feedback, and then became a, part of it became a Boston Review article. And, you know, people would, I, I give public talks, and people would email me, and I had public debates. And I think it really helped the book, because I was able to begin by making my argument in the clearest way possible, and then say, look, here's, what you, here's, here's how you're going to object to this. And then deal with the objections as best I can. You know, and, and, and it's not, I might be wrong in the end, it might be that, that, uh, that I've overstated my case, but I think I'm able to sort of at least anticipate what people will say in response and try to give a convincing counter argument. So I'm sort of 
able to engage in a conversation in my book that I wasn't able to do in other books. Mm -hmm. Did your views on this adapt at all as a result of these conversations? A little bit. Um, so, for instance, one thing which, which has changed is that I feel very confident in my arguments against empathy when it comes to making public policy decisions, mm -hmm. like when to go to war or what, uh, what, where a society should spend its money. I think empathy is extremely biased. It's enumerate. It's short-sighted. And my book is full of examples of how it leads to disastrous conclusions. Not often leads to leads us into into sort of violent and cruel acts. And that that I, I think the case is very strong. Where where I've been somewhat swayed by my critics is the role of empathy in personal relationships. So you might think that being biased isn't so bad when it comes to personal relationships. I'm supposed to be biased in favor of my children or my wife or my friends. And so I think empathy still has its problems in personal relationships. It's actually, um, I think, I think that there, there's all sorts of limitations. But but I take the criticism seriously that this may be something that's good for. And in my chapter on the topic, I kind of wrestle with this back and forth. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up the topic of bias in terms of empathy because I want to talk a little bit about uh, the relationship, two relationships, the relationship between empathy and compassion and the relationship between empathy and prejudice and how those aren't exactly what people always think they are. Right. So, so I'll take the second one first. Empathy is by its nature highly biased. Mm -hmm. There's tons of psychological neuroscience research that shows that you feel more empathy for somebody who's of your own race, someone who's attractive and not ugly, someone who's close but not far. And, you know, this is just common sense. You feel much more, much stronger feelings for somebody who's your friend or your family member than you do for some stranger in a faraway land. And so a decision made on the basis of empathy is going to overweigh race and gender and closeness and family. And, um, and so, so that's the connection. I think empathy in some way feeds off of our prejudices. And, if, and decisions made on the basis of empathy tend to be extremely biased and racist and narrow. Um, the relationship between empathy and compassion is really important, and it's a key part of my book. So my subtitle is The Case for Rational Compassion. And the way I define compassion and following a lot of other people is compassion is caring for people, is, is hoping that they do well. And, um, and it, it, you know, so if you're in pain and I feel your pain, that's empathy. Mm -hmm. If you're in pain and I want you to get better, but I don't feel your pain at all, that could be compassion. And there's a lot of research suggesting that even for face-to-face -face helping, even for family members or doctors, empathy burns us out, but compassion doesn't. Mm. And, uh, and in this way, my book makes some connection to the Buddhist literature, because there's a large literature on, you know, the proper way to be kind to someone else. And this literature, you know, makes a convincing case that um, the proper way is to be, is not to feel what they're feeling, but instead to love them, to care for them, what I've been calling compassion. Mm -hmm. There was a phrase that stuck out to me, um, and I think it was when you were talking about um, the Buddhist philosophy, um, feeling for and not feeling with the other, which I feel like sums all that up really nicely. Yeah, that's a lovely phrase. I mm -hmm. think it came up with it. It's a nice way. It's a nice way of putting it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've, I've, been, I've always been interested in, in um, Buddhist philosophy and theology and how it connects these issues. And, you know, what... what if you see uh, somebody who, who enters these practices and devotes their entire life to helping people, helping people who are suffering, they don't suffer themselves. They're often 
really joyous, happy people, mm -hmm. even when they're dealing with people in a lot of pain. And that seems to illustrate the advantage of compassion or empathy. On the flip side, there are a lot of, I think, very good, very well-intentioned people, some who've written me before the book, some who've written me after the book, who talk about how they have too much empathy. And because of that, dealing with people who are suffering is unbearable. So I, I, I excerpt in my letter, uh, a woman wrote me, uh, who was a doctor uh, at the 9-11 the site, and she had to stop working there because the suffering of people there just got too much for her, too overwhelming. And I think in that case, empathy has a real weakness when it comes to helping people. Mm -hmm. So is this, um, so the empathy, is the, do you think empathy is voluntary? And is there a way we can control that? Or is it more about our response to empathy? Um, it's both. So some empathy is involuntary, it's automatic. Mm -hmm. You know, if you see somebody slam a hammer onto their thumb, you might flinch. Mm -hmm. And there's not much you can do about it. Yeah, some people, just when they see somebody weeping, they can't help but have a flood of feelings go through them. But empathy can be controlled and could be directed. We can choose to empathize with some and not others. And you think that's a good thing. You think that's an argument in its favor. But it gets complicated. So politicians do what I call empathy traps, where in order to um, get you to agree with their policy, they'll encourage you to feel empathy for some group and not others. So um, I spend a lot of my book talking about violence and war. And typically when a politician wants you to hate some group, uh, somebody in another country, immigrants in their own country, what they'll do is they'll tell you stories about victims, moving stories about victims, get you to empathize the victims. And the way the mind works, and this is an insight from Adam Smith, the way the mind works is if I feel tremendous empathy for somebody who has suffered, it translates into anger against those who have caused the suffering. So for instance, uh, you know, to, to, to make this contemporary, um, I, I mentioned Donald Trump in my book, I had no idea he'd become president while I wrote it. So mm -hmm. as I wrote my, my partner, Donald Trump, I sort of asked him, are people gonna know who I'm talking about? <laughs> but the example I gave was his anti-immigration rhetoric, which is largely built around telling stories about people who suffered under immigrants, victims of violent crime, victims of rape, and so on. And the point of this, and you know, you may agree with this, you may disagree with this, but, but what Trump was using this for is to direct our animus towards immigrants, to get us to dislike immigrants. And so, so the flexibility of empathy is a powerful tool in the hands of uh, people with all sorts of agendas. Hmm. So to explore the flip side of that a bit, um, you also talk about the book and how um, different charities will use empathy in order to solicit donations. Um, why isn't that as effective a solution as it could be? It's often, it actually is often fairly effective. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've never doubted the power of empathy. If you want to get somebody to go into war or, or, or help somebody, empathy is a really good tool to do it. What I, what I worry, though, is that um, there's so many cases, and I talk about these in my book, but this is the work of, of a lot of other scholars, where the money we give to charities, driven by, by empathy, driven by the very best intentions, turns out to make the world worse. Um, I quote, you know, one, one simple example is that a lot of, uh, a lot of people want to adopt children from countries like Cambodia, and they're driven by honest feelings for suffering of kids, but then unscrewed people, basically kids from poor people, and even to rich Westerners. Um, another case, a really gruesome case, was pointed by Linda Pullman, 
who talked about the warlords of uh, Sierra Leone who would chop off the wounds of children. And when asked why they did that, they said, basically, you know, we do it for you. We, we do it because when we give Westerners an atrocity and evoke their strong feelings, they come with NGOs and so on, and we get money out of it. So, so there's all sorts of cases where empathic giving really makes the world worse. And I'm quite a fan of, um, you know, the movement of effective altruism, mm-hmm. which says, you know, forget about, forget about the, 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 the pictures of teary children, forget about these emotional appeals. Ask yourself the necessary question, what could you do to make the world the best place it could be, to help the most people? And um, often that's a, you get a very different answer than if you said, what makes me feel good? What, 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 what satisfies my emotional needs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought up the effective altruism because um, one kind of common theme that seems to run through the book is um, that oftentimes we get caught up in what you refer to as unintelligent empathy, where we make these decisions without necessarily um, knowing what action is warranted or if any action is warranted at all in a situation. That's right. That's right. And I think that, and a lot of, I, I think the, the way out of that, which a lot of people are pursuing, is not to let your feelings drive your choices as to what to do, but go for the, the sort of cold data. You know, and, and it's an imperfect world. There's a lot we don't know. We could, with all the rationality and intelligence, think we're making the world a better place by doing something and be mistaken. But we're a lot better off if we just try to look at what will make the most difference. And, you know, what makes the most difference is often, is, is often surprising. You find, you know, um, there's a lot of controversy over from economists, from public policy people, over how to best help other people. And I think the way people like you and me should look at this is um, we should be very interested in the answer. And, and if we want to make the world a better place, which I assume we do, uh, that answer will inform our behavior. Mm. Um, and another thing you talk about in the book is emotional contagion. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the difference between that and empathy is. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, emotional contagion is when you sort of basically catch the emotion of another person. So I have a lot of that. You know, mm-hmm. if I was talking to you and you were all weepy and everything, I find myself sort of tear up when I'm talking to you. It's why I'd be a terrible therapist. Um, <laughs> if you were cheerful, you'd cheer me up. Uh, and the way I've been viewing it in my book is that's a kind of empathy. That's one way empathy could work. It's face to face. You feel another person's feeling because they're right, they're right up to you. But what I stress is that empathy is broader than that. So I can make you feel empathy for somebody by telling you a story or by, you know, showing you a movie or a picture. You don't have to be in someone's actual presence. So the way I see it is emotional contagion is one subpart of empathy. All right. Um, so then, um, against empathy, do you have any plans for any kind of follow-up after this, or do you have plans for another project after it, or what are you thinking beyond this? Um, <laughs> I'm a bit done with empathy. I made my case, um, you know, and, and uh, I've always been interested in this topic, but my next book, I'm struggling with exactly how to frame it, mm-hmm. but I'm very interested in suffering. And in particular, I'm very interested in um, the pleasure we get from certain forms of suffering. Mm-hmm. Everything from hot chilies to scary movies to mountain climbing to long distance running, you know, to, to, to sulking. And uh, so I'm, I'm just fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. Um, so, Paul, just one more question for you. And this is a question that we ask all the guests on the podcast. Uh, okay. Since this is primarily for teachers, educators, their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, I, that's actually an easy one. All right. <laughs> when, I, when, I was, when I was an undergraduate, I was kind of listless and aimless. And I came across this professor, John McNamara, mm-hmm. at McGill University. And I ended up working in his lab, and he, he mentored me. And because of him, I became a psychologist. And it's also uh, at a party at his house, I met my wife. So, I'm oh, there you go. <laughs> All right. Great. Uh, well, Paul, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.